If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. Uh, and turn with me to Daniel 11. Uh, that's where we're going to be here this morning, Daniel 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one on one of the chairs in front of you there. We are nearing the end of this relatively brief journey through this important um, Old Testament book, continuing to see the hand of God at work in, uh, around, and, and through His people, and, and not just in the lives of His people. I, mean, I think we can, we can see that, but also just in all of creation, right? Where we're seeing the hand of God at work in, in the everything of existence, all right? In every place, in every time, in every season, and and here's the truth. We see his hand at work in every story. And, and Daniel 11 continues this portrait of our forever ruling and reigning God who, who is at work in every story. So stand with me, if you will, as we look uh, to God and his word to us today. This is Daniel chapter 11. We're going to start there in verse 2 and go through verse 4 here, here to start. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong uh, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so intimidated by Daniel 11. I'm honestly terrified as I stand here right now in front of your people. I'm, 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 I'm intimidated. And so I want to admit that to you. I want to admit my utter dependence on you, on your spirit to, to accomplish anything here today. Anything. I want to pray that you would give me humility that you would give me clarity, that you would give me freedom, that you would give me your protection, even your joy and affection and love as we come through this strange and difficult chapter in your word. Lord, I I trust you for your strength. I trust you for your promises. I trust you to supply. And I pray that you would help us all to receive your word here this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I sat down um, this past Monday and opened to Daniel chapter 11 and began to read, maybe you can picture this yourself. I had my Bible, right? I had my pen with me. I had my pad for taking some initial notes and observations. I'm a very boring person, so I use the same notepads and the same pens every week. It's the Amazon Basics graph paper pads because you can use the whole piece of paper without feeling like you're going over the wrong lines. And I use Pilot G207 pens, all right? That's my weirdest thing about me is that's the pen of choice. I'm just a little picky on that. And prior to reading the passage... I pause, this is every week, I pause and I pray asking God to open my deaf ears 
to hear what he would say, to give me eyes to see where he is leading us, and really just to speak through his word to me. That's the ordinary routine for me. Usually, I'll underline some verses as I'm reading through that, or or even just some phrases, or even just specific words, like, yeah, let's come back and deal with that. Anything that stands out. But when I got through reading the passage, Daniel 11, a long passage, even by Daniel's standards, Daniel 11 is a long chapter. I had read it. I even even think I understood what it was saying, but all I could write, I just want to be, I just want to be transparent with you in this moment. I've promised you I'll never, I will never lie to you. All, All I had written at the top of the page when I had finished reading that chapter were two words. So what? I don't know what that says about where my heart was on Monday morning. It probably doesn't say much good, but I wrote, so what? I'm not saying that's a good thing. I am not in any way suggesting that I was content to stay in that place. Far from it. The reality is I was very unsettled. And and I want you to know that. Because maybe when you come to a passage like this, you can relate to that. When you come to a passage like Daniel and you read it and you go, what in the world does this mean? All I had was so what? And it was, it was frustrating. When we come to Daniel chapter 11, what we see is nothing less than a comprehensive picture of the moral and spiritual nature of all of human history. It's this detailed picture being painted by God for Daniel as a, as a supernatural prophetic picture of what is to come. And from our vantage point today, right, looking back, we would just call this history. That, that's what we would call it. We would see it as, as history. But for him, for Daniel, it was prehistory, right? And we're going to look at it today through four lenses. We're going to look at it through the lenses of the context, the clarity, the climate, and the culmination. Those are the four. The context, the clarity, the climate, and the culmination. It all starts for us right there in verse 2. Remember Daniel, if we remember this from last week, Daniel has been fasting. He's been fasting and, and praying now for three weeks. That's what he's committed himself to. He devoted himself to prayer. He's seeking the Lord and his word. We know that he's been reading Jeremiah. And chapter 11 is God's response to that prayer of Daniel. We were told last week in chapter 10, verse 14, which was a lead into chapter 12. We were told this, that the vision came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision is for days yet to come. So this vision, what we're going to see in here, it's a vision of what's to come. It's a vision of what's to come in response to the discouragement and the anxiety connected to what is right now. And we remember that Daniel, this man of God, this prophet of God, we need to remember that he isn't insulated from the realities of life. He's not elevated above that. 
He's not elevated above the brokenness of this world. He's not distant from us. Sometimes I think we can fall into that. We can think that that's how it's supposed to be, to think that because of our faith that that we're sort of immune from uh, the painful parts of life. But what what history shows and what our lives display and what God's word communicates to us is not that we're removed from the mess of life, but that because of our faith, we have a different perspective in the midst of the mess. One commentator makes the statement, and maybe you can relate to this. He says, he says, if you know what it is to struggle and fail when you attempt to do what God has told you to do, so that you find yourself wondering why you should even bother to try again, this chapter is designed for you. You see, again, God meets us in the storm. He meets us in the fray. He meets us in the sadness. He's not running away. He's not dodging our calls. He doesn't just show up on the good days. He doesn't just show up when it is convenient. No, it's in our darkest days. It's in our darkest days that we find him running to us, that we find him standing with us, that we find him holding on to us as his children. Like, can you believe that? I mean, I think that's an important question for us today. Can you believe that when you've fallen again, or maybe when you've been trampled again, or when you've been neglected again, can you believe that God the Father still remains with you? That when you call, He hears you. That when you call, He comes to you. That when you call, He is present with you. That is the context of Daniel 11. It's in the storm And God is here. Now look at verse 5, because this is where it starts to get a little crazy. All right, in verse 5, this is what it says. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. And he shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. And I think that speaks for itself. (laughs) What do you do with that? That's not even in my notes. I'm genuinely curious. I walked into a seminary class this week and asked them if they had any tips. Tuesday afternoon, Andrew can verify this. They thought I was joking. I wasn't laughing. Y'all got any illustrations for Daniel 11? No. <laughs> yeah, that's, what semin- that's how seminarians laugh. I don't know if you know that. Um, they all laughed at me. I was standing right out there. I said, anybody got any illustrations for Daniel 11? Anyone want to unpack Daniel 11 for me? And they all laughed at me. Because they don't have any illustrations for Daniel 11. It's just history playing out. And it's not exciting. And nobody amened. I didn't hear one amen when I finished reading that. Good Presbyterians, right? Back last summer, uh, Logan went to a, a little baseball camp. 
This is our youngest. He was like seven at the time. It was just a couple of mornings, and as we were driving there to drop him off on the first day, um, he had his glove, right? He had his bat, has a little hat, um, has a sick little Under Armour shirt on, man. He was ready to go. Had his baseball pants, had all the gear that he needed. He was ready, and he asked me what it was going to be like when we got there. Uh, we're driving down, you can kind of, if you're a parent, you maybe know this, when they're sitting there like booster seat age in the back, and you're looking at them in the rear view mirror, and all they can see is like your eyes, you can kind of see their face, and, and not a whole lot more, and he's looking at me, and I can, I can see him, and, and he didn't say it with his mouth, but, but he, I told him this, I, here's what I told him, he says, what's it going to be like, I said, it's going to be great, man, it's going to be so much fun, I mean, y'all are going to hit the ball, you're going to run the bases, you're going to catch stuff, you're going to eat snacks and, you know, I don't know. What do you do at baseball camp? That was the problem. He looked at me. His, he didn't say it with his mouth, but his face said, you have no idea what it's going to be like. And he was right. I mean, in all honesty, he was right. I had hopes. I had thoughts, maybe some expectations, but I didn't really know. And when we got there, this uh, sweet baseball player comes up. He was, he was, just graduated from high school, big kid, and he comes up. He says, man, you excited? And Logan, just as precious as can be, says, um, I'm nervous. I've never been to camp before. And I like, melted my heart. I'm a crier anyway, so I was like, guys, I'll be back. I'm going to go take care of, I'm going to make some phone calls over here or something. Ah, I'm nervous. I've never <laughs> been to camp before. You see, I didn't really know what it was going to be like. And he was nervous, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. It's okay to be nervous when you're stepping into something new, when you're walking a path you've never walked before. That's okay. Like, don't feel shame over that. It's okay to be nervous. And as his dad, I really, really wanted to be able to tell him what it was going to be like. I wanted to know so that I could tell him. I wanted to know so that I could encourage him in the moment. What we see in verses 5 through 8 are what we're going to call the clarity, which might be the biggest misnomer you've ever had. Because if you read through that, you're like, what is it even talking about? And what I'm telling you is that it's the clarity. All right? We know the context, and here we see the clarity. In the spirit of of alliteration, by the way, other words that almost made the cut here were the confidence, the conviction, and the certitude. But you didn't. I don't know why I told you that. Anyway. It's at this point that some of the critics... Here, here, this is the most controversial passage in all of Daniel, right here. Because it's at this point that higher critics will begin to try to deconstruct the book of Daniel. And interesting, at least from the prophetic standpoint, they don't attack it because it's off. Like People don't attack Daniel uh, because, it, because it's not true. They attack Daniel because it's accurate. Like, and it's not part, it's not like, so it's not like Daniel's part of some doomsday cult, right? It's not, it's not like that, just perpetually calling up Leslie from Parks and Rec to reserve the park to usher in the end of the world each year. That's not, that's not what he's doing. No, they don't attack it because it's untrue. They don't attack Daniel because it falls short of reality. They attack Daniel because it's so accurate. That's how some critics view Daniel. It's just too accurate. That whole scene that you see there in verses uh, 5 through 8, those, those verses are laying out what's going to happen in the next almost 300 years of human history. 
a group of kings. You see Alexander the Great. He's the most powerful one there. He's the one who comes, but he doesn't get to stay long. And his kingdom gets divided up by the four winds, right? And then you've got the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. And those begin to war against each other. This is what would happen in history. And this just repeats itself over and over again in verses 9 through uh, through 34. We see this constant back and forth of of what Jesus is going to refer to in Matthew 24 as, as wars and rumors of wars. It's really just a continuation of what we saw in the early verses where one king or kingdom rises to power and holds that power for a season on, only to be followed by their, their collapse and downfall. And it, it happens so often. There's almost a cadence to it. And Daniel 11, a, a king arises or a queen and, 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 and it's immediately followed by the word but if you, if you go through there and you're a highlighter, so if you want to know what I ended up highlighting, it's the word but in here a whole bunch of times because something happens and that seems permanent, but. That's the story of Daniel 11. Something happens from our perspective. It seems permanent. There's a new king. There's a new kingdom. Who could ever override this? And now all of a sudden there's this word, but. It happens 14 times in here that we see that word. This is in the original language. Sometimes your English translation is going to have the word and and there, but 14 times, 14 times we see this cadence, this back and forth. This happened, but we saw it in verse 4 with Alexander the Great. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds, but not to his posterity. Think about this. The greatest king who's ever walked the earth didn't even get to transfer his kingdom to his kids but not to his posterity. We see it in verse 12 with Ptolemy IV, where it says that when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Isn't this the constant story of human flourishing followed by human declining that we see playing out every single day as pride and discontent seem to rule the hearts of men. And this focus on the kingdoms of the, of the south and the kings of the north, the Seleucids and the Egyptians, it just serves to remind us beyond the, mere, beyond the mere reality of continual conflict in the world, it reminds us that the environment we live in is still hell-bent on tearing itself apart. Now, we're not innocent in this. Let's be careful that we don't see sin only as an out-there problem. All right, We contribute more than enough to our own suffering. But the truth is that the people of God today, like Israel in Daniel's time, we're still walking in the sinful reality of a groaning world. And and here's here's the thing. If you know me, you will know that what I'm about to say is true. I try desperately to steer clear of current events. All right? I I really do. It's It's a... I think it's out of humility that I do that. It could be out of fear. I'm not sure. But I don't like to talk about current events a whole lot, because mostly because as a people, we are just too prone to overreaction. I'm not a policy writer. That is not my job. That's not my calling. But if you want to know how broken the world is, the last few weeks have offered plenty of examples. Right? We live in a world. Here's what we, we live in a world where being black and going grocery shopping in upstate New York ends up getting you shot. It's a world where being in the wrong classroom can end in terrifying 911 calls and the loss of precious children. It's a world where, one, here's a, just so we're not doing this out there, it's a world where one of the largest Christian denominations, where one of the largest Christian denominations 
in America can have a list of 700 sexual abusers, 700, 700 monsters who took advantage of their positions of leadership within the church who leveraged their power and posture to satisfy their own sinful desires. And the denomination not only has their names, but now we have the stories of how they covered up the sin. That's probably the loudest I've ever yelled in here. (laughs) A story of how they covered up the offense out of some sick and twisted lie about protecting the mission of the gospel. When the reality is, it's all about controlling the narrative. By the way, anytime somebody tells me we need to control the narrative, I immediately freak out. We don't control the narrative any more than we control the rising and the setting of the sun. We tell the truth, period. Sometimes the truth is a mess. Sometimes the answer to the questions you ask here are going to be, I don't know, let's figure it out together. Because we'd rather be honest than tell you something untrue. Because the truth is that the world is broken. The truth is that it's tearing itself apart. It's where we find ourselves today. And no, that is not good news. On the surface, both for Daniel and for us today, that's not very comforting. On the surface, this story of coming conflicts that mark out human history, they don't inspire a whole lot of peace in our hearts. The dark days ahead can be scary. They are scary. And I could tell you story upon story of how in other parts of the world, believers today are living this out in real time. I could tell you how one of the greatest problems for the church today, and I do believe this, one of the greatest problems for the church today is our failure to really put our lives in perspective. And we could look at Hebrews 11. Let's just do it. Instead of looking at world history, let's look at Hebrews 11, where the author lists out some of the heroes of the faith. So it's Abraham, and it's Isaac, and it's Jacob, and it's Moses, right? It's the people crossing the Red Sea as if on dry land, and and marching around Jericho, and blowing trumpets, and walls falling down. We could read those stories in, in Hebrews 11. It's Rahab, the prostitute, risking her own life to help God's people, and being counted among the faithful. And it's the judges, right? We have the judges and who faithfully served the Lord while the people of the Lord turned from Him. We need some contemporary judges today. Some of us need to be reading judges more than we're reading a whole bunch of other stuff. And here's what he writes. Here's what the author of Hebrews writes. He says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, here's their list, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, All right, so Daniel doesn't get mentioned by name in Hebrews 11, but his story is definitely in there. These are the stories that we want, aren't they? They are. We want to shut the mouths of lions. We want to put 
foreign armies to flight. We want to quench the power of fire. We want the story of Mary and Martha, right? The story of women who receive back their dead by resurrection. But for perspective, the next line after that in Hebrews 11, after some women receive back their dead through resurrection, the next line is, do you know what it is? Some were tortured. It says that others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. So we think of John and we think of Peter and we think of Paul and, and Silas, right? Men of God who were treated so poorly by the world around them. It says that they, here's what it says, that they were stoned and then it goes super dark. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. I've never seen someone with the scars of being sawn in two in my lifetime. And so it would be easy at this point to tell you something really shallow, like cheer up, man. It could be a lot worse. Keep your head up. At least you're not in, 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 in Sudan right now. But that's not the point of Daniel 11. Daniel is in the season of worse. He is in the fray of worse. He's in the mess. And he already knows that just like you do. We know the world is a mess. We, we know that we're a mess. Make no mistake, my greatest enemy is myself. As, as the great theologian Pink once said, I'm a hazard to myself. That's the climate I live in. Some of you are all like, that dude just quoted Pink in a PCA church. We're bringing him up on charges. That's the climate we live in. So what? What do we do with Daniel 11? Here's the culmination. We see it right here at the end. After this long line of conflict where another king has risen to power, he's conquered everything, he's become rich, and here's verse 44. So yes, we're taking a jump. Here's 44. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. It's verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. The culmination is deliverance. The culmination is restoration. That's what we're meant to see. Yes, it's dark. Yes, it's depressing. Yes, it's scary. But that's not the end of this story. So here are four things we can do today. You ready? Here's the answer to so what. Here are four things, and I'm borrowing these, but here they are. What do we do with Daniel 11? We believe, we resist, we teach, and we pray. Those are your four things. 11.32 says that the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Remember, and believe that our God 
is in control. Believe that our God is still working everything according to the counsel of his will. Daniel is called to believe, and so are we. We are called to believe, as Joey prayed earlier, that God's hand is at work in the mess, that he has not abdicated the throne, that he has not run away, that he is not intimidated by some new and greater enemy, but that God is in control and he is working all things together for our good and his glory, even when we don't understand it. We must and shall believe. The second thing we got to do is we got to resist. Stand firm and take action. To borrow a line, do not Go gentle into that good night. Don't be seduced by the world. Don't be tempted to believe that this is all there is. There is more. In Luke 23, this is a beautiful picture of it. In Luke 23, if you know that passage, you know it's at the cross. It's where Jesus is at the cross. And he tells this thief who is dying right there beside him, he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As Jesus is hanging there with him. He's not standing safely on the ground. He's not doing that. He's not down on the ground. He's not tell, hey, keep your head up, man. It's almost over. That's not what he's telling him. He's there with him, literally bleeding and dying for this man's sin. And he tells the guy, and he tells us that there is more. Here's what the, the, the famous missionary uh, Jim Elliot. He wrote this in his journal just before being martyred by the very people who he was trying to proclaim the gospel to. Martyred by those he longed to see saved. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We must resist the pull of the world away from the hope of salvation in Christ. We must fight. We must resist that. Stand firm. Take action, and then we must teach. We must teach these things. Just as you know, what we just as we took a vow today in this worship service to assist these parents in the Christian nurture of this child, we teach these truths to those around us. And in teaching, here's what we do: in teaching, we're reminding ourselves. That's why. That's why Jesus gave us the sacraments. He's like, you people are too easy to forget. Let me, let's get some water involved. Let's get some bread. Let's get some wine. Let's try and help you people remember because we forget. In teaching, we remind ourselves. We, we have to learn to rehearse the gospel every single day. Some people say, preach the gospel to yourself. If, that's, if you're more comfortable with that, that's fine. I want to rehearse the gospel over and over and over again like somebody's life depends on it. Our verse of the year is 1 Peter 3.15. We have it on bookmarks. They're everywhere. To get a bookmark made, you've got to buy like 10,000 of them. So we got bookmarks. If you, if you have any books that need bookmarks, we got them. And on those bookmarks is 1 Peter 3.15 where he reminds us, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We must teach these things. We must pass them on. Sin has a cost. Jesus paid that cost for us with his life. He took our sin upon himself at the cross and by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone, we can hear the words of Jesus on our big day where he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We've got to teach that. And then we pray. We pray. 
Ian Duguid says this, and I love this quote. It's in your worship guide. He says this. He says, prayer is the revolutionary activity by which weak mortal creatures take our stand in the great cosmic battle and do our part to move heaven and earth toward God's final victory. We have to regain the lost gift of calling on the name of the Lord to do what he has said he's going to do. It's that 1 Thessalonians 5.24 benediction. We use this so often. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. When you're weak, he will surely do it. When you are beat down, he will surely do it. When you're tired, he will surely do it. When you're confused, like I was in Daniel 11, he will surely do it. When you're scared, he will surely do it. When you have nothing left to give, he will surely do it. When you remember that the only thing that you bring to your salvation is the sin that makes salvation necessary, he will surely do it. Believe, resist, teach, and pray. Perhaps the greatest gift that Daniel 11 gives to us is that it reminds us that apart from God, we can do nothing. And that by the grace of God, we'll never have to know that fear ever again. We can know that he's holding us. We can know that. And that is enough. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us, even that word that is hard to understand, even that word that is hard to, hard to immediately apply, I thank you that, you that you still speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe. Help us to believe, Lord. Help us to resist the temptations of our hearts. Help us to resist the pull of the world. Help us to teach these truths to ourselves, to our families, to our children, to our friends, to our neighbors. Help us to be fearless in this. Lord, help us to pray. Help us to know that your ear is open, that your face is turned towards us, and help us to find joy there. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.